0: Welcome to A.A. Beyond Belief, the podcast. I'm your host, John S. Today we meet Lynn R. from Jasper, Georgia. Lynn has recently been recording audio versions of the stories that have been published on our site. You can find them all on our YouTube and SoundCloud channels. But hello, I'm here today with Lynn R. from Jasper, Georgia. I met Lynn, I don't know, a month or two ago. Um, he contacted us wanting to do some work for AA Beyond Belief. And what he has done truly is Beyond Belief. He has done a tremendous number of voiceovers for all of our articles on the site. And we have these things uploaded on SoundCloud and YouTube and we're starting to get a really good response to them. They're just short little 15-minute, 20-minute audio stories from what has been published on AA Beyond Belief, and Lynn has done a tremendous job with that. So thank you, Lynn, and welcome to the podcast. It's good to have you here.
1: Thank you, John, and uh, Happy New Year to you. And uh, as far as the podcast and the uh, recordings go it's it's my pleasure and my honor to be of service uh, you can't you can't begin to b- understand just how much this means this service means to me and how much it's helped me even yeah. my wife has said she's noticed a difference in my demeanor since I've started doing this it's it's sort of i've i found a sense of purpose and yeah. being of service really is you know one of the foundations of our
0: program It is. Um, I I understand exactly where you're coming from. Um, This site, AA Beyond Belief, and working on it with everybody else has become almost really like a home group to me. (laughs) I mean, I I get just as much out of this as I do my regular group here in Kansas City. I love it. And it makes me happy to see that other people like you and Doris and so many others, Thomas, are out there. And also um, receiving, I don't know, help or benefit or something from, from participating in this. I was
1: telling my wife the other day of fantasy, I said, you know, I want to get on a plane, go to Kansas City and go to the meeting. There you it's, go. <laughs> <laughs> discovering this. I mean I literally just discovered that there was an agnostic atheist movement within AA in oh, I made some notes here. I think it was um September uh, that that I that I first found that there were some meetings here and attended a meeting. Mm -hmm. And yeah, September 19th was my first AA agnostic meeting. Wow! And, and, you know, it went on from there. I started learning more, started reading your site, signed up to go to the convention, Mm -hmm. sent you the email volunteering to work. Mm -hmm. And uh, it has just been a journey for me that's just been beyond exciting.
0: Let's talk about that journey.
1: Okay, well... Um, you know, the, I guess one of the important things is I had 22 years of contiguous sobriety before losing it about six years ago. Yeah. So to, uh, to go back to the early days, I was born uh, in a large family, eight kids, and I was the oldest seven boys, one girl. So, uh, I learned a lot of responsibility early, you know, just being in that kind of a large family, uh, because my dad was a truck driver, worked long hours and, uh, and mom was a stay at home mom because she was either pregnant or taking care of babies. So right. uh, how could she be anything else? But I grew up around, and I didn't know it at the time, but alcoholism, mm-hmm. uh, my father was, was. You know, a heavy drinker, I mean, I hesitate to lay a designation of alcoholism on anybody. Mm-hmm. That's up to them to say who who, or what they are. They, right. they're, My parents are both deceased. Yeah. But my dad would drink. He would work all day and a lot of hard physical labor back in the days when he drove a truck hauling steel mm-hmm. and this was before the days of power steering and the you know, automatic transmissions on big trucks. And he was about five foot, six hundred and fifty pound guy. And, uh, so, I mean, throwing big, heavy canvas tarps, there weren't those little plastic tarps like today. So yeah. chains and ropes and tarps to, to tie down those loads of steel and then drive it across town and then have to take all that off and be unloaded, loaded again, do it again. Um, that was a lot of physical labor. I, I can remember one thing from my youth. My father could, he had so much upper body strength that those ladders that they, they, uh, they mount right onto the side of a wall. So Mm -hmm. you're like, you're climbing up the wall. Mm -hmm. He could grab one rung with one hand and a lower rung with the other hand and swing his feet straight out. I mean, he had that much upper body strength. Mm -hmm. So, but you know, he worked and when he finished working. He would stop at the bar and he would drink Mm -hmm. and, uh, and sometimes he came home and, uh, it was fine. And other times he overshot the mark and, uh, my mother would always just, you know, make an excuse for him. He works hard. You know, he's just tired. Mm -hmm. Uh, nowadays when I look back and I, and they didn't know any of this as a kid, this was just normal. Mm -hmm. Uh, he, he was drunk. He wasn't, you know, sleeping on the floor at the top of the stairs because he was tired. He passed out. Yeah. Um, and, uh, mom was a secret drinker. She would wait until we all went to bed and then she would drink. And, uh, and there were many mornings that, uh, you know, she didn't qu- quote unquote feel good and it was my responsibility to get all the kids fed, the littler ones fed, lunches made off to school, off to school myself and uh, be home right after school, because with that big a family, she needed help. So those were my early years, and drinking, heavy drinking, was just normal. If we went to visit anybody else, you know, our family friends, we went to, of course, visit friends who were like, quote-unquote, us. Right. So that's all I saw was heavy <clears throat> drinking there, too. As a matter of fact, when you walk through the door, the adults, at least the adults, they shook hands, you know, and handed you a beer with the other. Mm-hmm. and, and later on during the visit they, you know, the hard stuff had come out. And, uh, to me, that was just normal. You work hard, you support your family, uh, out of eight kids on a truck driver's salary, we were always fed. We were always warm. You know, we, we, we were poor, but we didn't know it. We always had Christmas. Um, of course, a lot of this stuff was hand-me-downs and et cetera. But again, I knew no other way. I mm-hmm. knew no other life. So, um, um, as my story continues, when I was 18 years old, I, uh, I made the, uh, uh, the, the great decision to get out of there. So I did something really smart. I got married at mm-hmm. 18 <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, 11 months later had my first, uh, our first daughter was born. And, and two years after that, our second daughter was born. And I continued on in the pattern that I had seen my entire life. I went to work. I supported my family. I made sure all the bills were paid. My wife was a stay-at-home mom. And when my responsibilities were complete, I drank. Yeah. And and I just figured that's, that's just what adults do. And that was my right to do that. Mm-hmm. Uh, As long as I kept them fed, sheltered, supported, um, then then it it was my right to do whatever I wanted to do. Sure. Um, But supported also meant emotional support. And I have to admit, now looking back, having learned from the program, I wasn't there for them. They didn't have my emotional support. I wasn't there at night. Um, I was, after I finished working, and then I would stop at the bar and drink, and I would come home and go to sleep. Uh, on, on the weekends, we spent a little time together. But again, after things were taken care of, if it was all done and shopping was done and we played, we went to the park or did this or did that, you know, I, I, it was my turn. I would either drink at home or go to a bar. And, uh, you know, it continued that way through uh, all about seven years of that marriage. And uh, and she finally divorced me.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And, uh, you know, I was never there. I really can't go back and blame her and uh so now i was free to uh to drink or stay out as late as i want as often as i wanted to and uh and and that's what i did um i'm i'm an excellent pool player or was while Mm -hmm. i could still when i was still young and could see Mm -hmm. and uh, could play well enough at that time to the local bars we'd play for a beer or a dollar and uh even though the divorce left me without very little in my pocket, because in those days, the mother always got custody of the children. So I had to pay child support, which the judge said at about 60% of my take-home salary. So I had nothing to live on. You know, I had to live with my parents. But in any case, I I could drink. I didn't have a lot of money, but I could drink for free because I'd go to bars and play pool for a dollar. And uh, I could I could play and uh, stay there for hours, get drunk, have something to eat, and still leave with five dollars in my pocket. And uh, I could also sing. I, I, mm-hmm. I had some musical talent. I actually, played in a band uh, in high school where we uh, made made money. So it was actually a band. We had paying gigs, okay. school dance, school dances. Um, we had a a standing gig at the U.S.O. Club in downtown Detroit. We're talking mm-hmm. the late sixties here. Mm-hmm. And, uh, so, uh, I could sing and there was a piano bar in the, uh, in the neighborhood where I worked and I discovered my second, uh, you know, avenue to get free drinks. Mm-hmm. If you go to a piano bar, and this was before the days of karaoke, uh, you could drink, and if you performed well and uh, sang songs that people liked, drinks started coming your way. <laughs> and, and at the at the place where I drank, if somebody bought you a drink and, and you were drinking it and you weren't done yet, and somebody else bought you one, they just brought you a shot glass and turned it upside down in front of you. Mm-hmm. And there were times that I had four or five shot glasses lined up in front of me. Wow. Yeah, so it was, uh, it was there that I met my second wife. Uh, we worked together. We, uh, at the same company, uh, not in the same departments, but I was kind of the social, uh, after work drink guy. Mm-hmm. So, uh, just before five o'clock, I'd start going around saying, who wants to stop for one? And, uh, if we were going to go to the piano bar, I made sure to invite her and then uh, sing some songs and looking directly at her. And, you know, we fell in love and uh, and eventually moved in together. And uh, that was comfortable because we were both recently divorced and living together was good enough for us. Mm-hmm. We didn't need to get married. Then I moved to I uh, got a promotion that moved me to California. So now both of us were making a cross country move mm-hmm. and uh, and we got married mostly at her family, her mother's insistence. You're not moving to California unless you guys are married. Mm. So, so we got married and, uh, uh, you know, we were drinking buddies. Her social life, uh, was tied to mine. I liked to drink in bars and, uh, she didn't drink nearly as much as I did. Uh, but she'd be there with me and we had a social life and, uh, long story short, uh, my alcoholism progressed. It got worse. I had always felt that as long as I could do my job, get up, go to work, everything was fine.
2: Mm-hmm. But
1: now I wasn't, you know, I was calling in sick more often.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And when I was at work, my work was beginning to suffer.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And, um, and I started trying to quit drinking, uh, but it never lasted. I could stop for a while and say, I'm not going to do it. And a week later I'd be drinking again. Yeah the, um, the, uh, um, at work they had, I, I, I had throughout my career, I worked mostly for fortune 250 companies. Mm -hmm. So it was a large company with a big, you know, um, HR department. And, um, I started getting, started seeing these employee assistance pamphlets, Mm -hmm. you know, showing up on my desk, the ones that (laughs) say, uh, do you or your, anyone in your family have a problem with drugs or alcohol? We can Mm -hmm. help. And I said, oh, interesting. And uh, <laughs> I, I thought everybody was getting them, but uh, they weren't.
0: Interesting. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so my boss, um, who it turns out his father is a doctor mm-hmm. and uh, and was enlightened about alcoholism, saw my problem and started putting these pamphlets on my desk. You know, one day I just uh, went out Friday night, got really drunk, had a hangover Saturday. I never really suffered much from hangovers. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, got better that afternoon, but on Sunday I got really sick. And, uh, uh, so I went to the hospital and usually in my story, I, t- I, I tell people I used to pay doctors for the privilege of lying to them. Yeah, you know, <laughs> How much do you drink? Oh, a couple of drinks a yeah. week, you know, it not, not, not even enough to mention, mm-hmm. uh, and, um, but this time I told the doctor the truth for whatever reason. Yeah. And, um, he, I said, but how, you know, how could that be connected? Because I haven't had a drink, you know, since Friday and here it is Sunday and I'm sick as a dog. Mm-hmm. And he said, uh, I believe you're going through withdrawal. How about that? Wow. You yeah. know, that, I mean, that was a shock mm-hmm. and, um, he recommended that I see my, my regular doctor and he gave me a shot and they watched me for a few hours and I felt better. But that really scared the heck out of me. And yeah. I, I did go to my doctor and tell him the truth.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: You know, it was just sort of a serendipitous sequence of events. Um, he said, you know, I don't know much about alcoholism. And in my mind, I screamed alcoholism. Who said anything about alcoholism? Wow. <laughs> yeah. Um, he said, but, you know, I just joined the staff of the local St. Jude's Hospital, and they have a chemical dependency unit that I hear is pretty good. Maybe you should go over and talk to them. Okay. And, uh, and I can remember thinking, chemical dependency. Well, you know, that's that's a label that fits a man of my stature. <laughs> <laughs> I could be chemically yeah. dependent, not, but I'm not an alcoholic. Right. And, uh, because alcoholics are skid row bums. And um, the, uh, I went and met with them, and I met with one of the counselors, and they tried their best to talk me into checking in. Uh, But I I said, you know, I wanted to think about it. They gave me a big book and a 12 and 12 and sent me home. Then a week later, made an appointment to come back a week later. And I went back there for that appointment with all the intention, full intention of giving them back the books and saying no thanks. Because Mm -hmm. when I read the books, and I could certainly identify with Bill W.'s story. Right. But then I saw God on every page. And, you know, I was an agnostic. I okay. sort of glossed over that in my early life. I was, you know, raised Catholic, but as as soon as I became a well, when I became a teenager, I began to have questions, mm-hmm. and you know, like how could God sentence someone to hell for eternity if they committed a mortal sin
2: right.
1: but died on their way to confession, yeah. and. You know, so yeah, just I just
0: made it to we, confession. Everything would have been cool, right?
1: Yeah. you made it to confession. He could have gotten, <laughs> uh, but you know, you didn't, didn't do it. So you died with a mortal sin on your soul and you go to hell. How come babies that aren't yeah. baptized don't get to go to heaven? Mm-hmm. And I said, that, yeah, that the loving and vengeful God thing, I, you know, I just couldn't come to grips with and became agnostic. So now at this point I'm seeing God on every page of the big book yeah. and it's, yeah. you know, this isn't for me. Yeah and uh they now uh what said, part
0: what was this like 1980s lynn that you're that you're um talking about now or
1: yeah we're we're actually in 1988 okay okay um, my sobriety date was was 12 16 88 of 88 gotcha okay and, and um you know they, i mean i didn't even make it through christmas and new year's yeah <laughs> the uh but actually when i went back and i told the counselor i I don't think this is for me. They said, "Wait a minute, uh, if you if you could." And uh, and my AA claim to fame, mm-hmm. uh, Doctor Paul O. The room. He just happened to be the medical director of the program at St. Jude's.
0: Now he's the author of mm-hmm. Doctor Alcoholic Addict.
1: Right. It's Doctor a- Doctor Alcoholic Addict in the third edition. Right. In the fourth edition, they changed it to Acceptance is the answer. Right as a
0: newcomer answer. people would quote that his chapter probably more than any other story in the book i think
1: and and it was and he he was a remarkable remarkable man
2: mm.
1: sat down calmly told me his story mm-hmm. and i said you know to myself afterwards if a doctor now again we're talking about i have this mm. self image to maintain right. if a doctor could go through this and this program helped him well Maybe I need to give it a shot because I got to do something. Yeah. I can't stop drinking on my own. I need mm-hmm. some help. Mm-hmm. So I checked in and, uh, the, the very next day, the first day, they keep you under observation and, um, and I wasn't real bad. I wasn't going through withdrawals. Uh, and so the second day they put me in a van and hauled me off to my first day, a meeting along with the other patients. And uh, I expected that they were going to bring me into some room full of skid row bums. Mm -hmm. And they brought me into this room, this large room of speaker meeting on a Saturday night. And normal people, people like me, laughing, joking, Mm -hmm. slapping each other on the back. (laughs) Um, And, you know, it clicked that in my mind, you know, I'm kind of a smart guy. uh, Smart enough to know that every one of the people in there were alcoholics. Yeah. But They
0: were having fun and they were sober. I know. And that, you know, this is what kills me when I hear people's stories. That's what you just described. That's the magic of AA, in my opinion.
1: Yes. I mean, that fellowship, I, I <laughs> that didn't know you could be happy and have that kind of fun, have a party mm-hmm. and, and not be drinking. Yep, But they, here they were. That, yeah. that, that was, that was a reality. And yeah. I wanted that bad. Right. So I jumped in with both feet. I set aside my agnosticism. I said, I'll give it a try. They said, give God a try. So oh, you bet. And, uh, I did everything. I did the steps Right. Uh, you know, on, on my knees, you know, got a sponsor, did the steps on my knees, did everything I could, said all the God stuff in the back of my mind. I didn't believe it, but they said. And I even brought that up and they said, don't worry, it'll come. Uh, And uh, so I just kept going, got involved in service work, chaired meetings, secretary, treasurer. Um, The the uh, treatment program had an alumni association and I got involved in that. And, you know, what they were doing was mostly making sure that there was a meeting for people as they got out of the program, they they would go to this meeting. And so there were newbies and there were people, I, it was my, part of my job was to make sure that there were alumni, people who had gone through that same treatment program there at the meeting. So there could be some real identification going on. You know, I helped do that and, uh, did that for a couple of years until the hospital finally shut down their program because Mm -hmm. insurance companies were no longer paying easily Mm -hmm. paying for inpatient programs. They wouldn't you know, they uh, pay for inpatient unless you tried outpatient and, you know, other things. Mm-hmm. Now, you're so, in
0: Southern California, right? Yes. Okay. Mm-hmm. And so when you're um, – it sounds like you're having a pretty good time with the program here. And the God stuff isn't bothering you too much because when you talk to people about your objections, it's more like, hey, don't worry about it. It'll come. Nobody's really pushing you too hard on it.
1: Right, right. So the uh, the meetings were a lot more fun. Happy, mm-hmm. joyous, free. And uh, there was God talk, but it wasn't shoved down your throat. Whenever anybody shared, when you were done, people clapped. You know, if you were picking up a yeah. 30-day chip, people were cheering.
0: That's California. I mean, that do, They they do a lot of the clapping there, don't they?
1: Oh, indeed. <laughs> and uh, and there was a lot of camaraderie. And uh-huh. I can't think of a group that didn't go out for coffee and pie or dinner or whatever after mm-hmm. a meeting. There was—, mm-hmm. there was a big social environment mm-hmm. and, uh, and I loved it, but then I got, uh, laid off, uh, reduction in force. They call it, I got rift right. and, uh, picked up a job that said you'd have to move to Chicago. So, uh, you know, th- that was my choice and, and I did, uh, took the job, but now I was leaving behind my my AA in Southern California, all my friends, uh, my two grown daughters, you know, were there. I mean, everything that I got sober in was, uh, you know, was gone.
2: Yeah.
1: Oh, and and by the way, during that time, that second wife divorced me. Mm -hmm. Um, and I couldn't blame her because she lost her best buddy, her drink buddy, her friend, you know, she loved, you know, it it completely changed her social life. Sure. And that wasn't what she had bought into. And, you know, so again, we're still friends today Mm -hmm. and, uh, you know, I don't, don't blame her at all. Sure. But, but, you know, at five years sober, I'd gone through the death of my mother, the loss of that job, a new job that required a cross country move, leaving my daughters, my friends, my AA, And I got to Chicago, uh, up into the northwest suburbs, actually. And uh, I didn't even know anything about, again, anything about AA, uh, agnostic AA. And Quad A, I guess, was active at the time. But I didn't know. And uh, the meetings in my area were way different. In Southern California, I mean, we were taught. We were, you know, almost like boot camp. (laughs) You know, if if a new face walks into the room and you don't know them, You, I mean, we would converge upon them to make sure that they felt comfortable, whether they had a day's sobriety or 40 years sobriety. If they were new in that room and we didn't recognize them, everybody was there introducing themselves and making sure that they got coffee or, you know, whatever information they needed. Mm -hmm. Uh, but in Chicago, things were different. They weren't, you know, I walked in and found myself having to introduce myself, Right. um, yeah, there were people talking and laughing, but they were in their own little cliques. And, uh, you know, I was kind of standing on the outside trying to get in and, and I'm not saying again, now that's a, not all meetings in Chicago, but that's the ones right. that were near me. And, uh, and I stopped going as frequently then, uh, then another riff, uh, and, but I got a job a little farther out of Chicago and found a better meeting. And, uh, where, where they were more like that California meeting, they mm-hmm. were more, uh, inclusive and they made sure I felt it was a smaller meeting and they felt, uh, made sure I felt comfortable and I got a sponsor, but, uh, turned out he had to move away. And then shortly thereafter, um, I had gotten transferred to Atlanta. So, uh, you know, I get down in Atlanta and now I'm in the Bible belt and, uh, the God was real strong in those meetings, and now I'm starting to grit my teeth because my agnosticism had returned. Okay. You know, After I'd gone through the 12 steps and done all of this, I'd mm-hmm. never felt any of that God feeling that everybody talked about.
0: Yeah. Let me ask you this, though. Um, your experience is very similar to mine because I suppose I was agnostic. I was maybe an apathist. I really had no no religious background whatsoever, but I went I went through the steps, kind of going through the motions. In other words, what I did, I would I would speak in meetings as if I believed. I guess I don't know what I was doing, Lynn, but I, I somehow in my mind intellectualized the process and and somehow realized that okay, even though I don't believe that there's a God, there must be some psychological benefit to what I'm doing. Did you see value in what you were doing, or did you think it was all BS? How how did you feel about what you were doing as an agnostic as you went through those steps? Well,
1: I, when I was going through the steps, I was I was making an honest effort to believe that there was a deity. Okay, gotcha. There that was that was listening. Okay. Um, but then, as as I concluded them and was working with others, I found that I, again that God sense that people talk about just never came to me. Yeah. But but I knew the language and I'm a people pleaser. Yeah, so, that, you know, I, yeah. I said what I knew they wanted to hear. Yeah. And, uh, you know, God did this for me and God did that for me because the program works.
0: It does.
1: You know, I lost my belief in God, but I never lost my belief in the program. Yeah. Uh, it, it did work. It worked for me and I saw it working for, you know, thousands of other people. Yeah. So something about it worked. I made okay. the group my higher power. Heard yeah. somebody say one time GOD group of drunks. Mm-hmm. So uh, I took that and ran with that yeah. and in, and it worked. Yeah. Um, the uh, but when I got to Georgia now the meetings were not only, you know, spiritual, they were at least again the ones I was in. Mhm. Uh, were were religious. One yeah. of them, at one meeting, they even asked me what church I belonged to. Right. Uh, and, and um, you know, it, it, it just gritted my teeth because it wasn't just references to a higher power or references to God. It was references to Jesus Christ, wow. Christ our Lord. Now, I have
0: heard about this in AA, but I've never personally experienced it. But I, I think even around here it happens, and maybe more frequently than it used to, but um, I've never experienced that. But I know that it happens, and other people experience it, and that would really be difficult for me to have to deal with too.
1: Right. So uh, before I start getting letters from everybody in Georgia, um, not I. I found out later on not all meetings are like sure. that. But that though the ones around me were. Yeah. And and it still exists, kind of in the small towns. Sure. Uh, uh, small town AA. And uh, long story short, I just stopped going to meetings. Yeah this was about halfway through that 22 years. And I made it the rest of the time with no program at all. And I didn't have any desire to drink. The cravings didn't come back. Mm -hmm. I didn't have any program, didn't have friends in the program, wasn't doing anything, wasn't reading the book. Mm -hmm. But I was staying sober, got married to a woman that I met in Atlanta. Mm -hmm. She married me sober. She had never seen me drink. I was open to her about the fact that I was an alcoholic, but If she wanted to drink, that was okay. Uh, But, you know, I would just order a Diet Coke. But still being a typical alcoholic, she could leave half of a $30 steak sitting on the table, and I didn't care. But if she left half of a $6 drink, I started looking at, you know, aren't you going to finish that? (laughs) So, uh, you know, I, I was still alcoholic, still had that alcoholic thinking. Another, I mean, I went through all of life that people go through. My father died during that time. My dog died during that time. I lost the good job that I was involved in there in Atlanta. Um, stayed unemployed for like 18 months, had some severe medical problems, had to go on some, some significant narcotics. And, uh, uh I found that they, you know, for me narcotics, if you really need them, if you're really in pain, they were giving me morphine and I didn't get high, but when I started to get better and it started to need less, um, I started to begin to feel a little bit of a high
2: mm-hmm.
1: and, um, started looking forward to, you know, the time that I could take my next batch of pills mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, sometimes would even take a few extras so I could get a little extra pain relief. And, uh, this in my mind started threatening my sobriety and I'm not drinking. But if I'm using, if I'm abusing drugs, then, uh, that's, that's my support. That's sobriety. So I went to the doctor, had him cut it back, threw away what I, the extra that I had and, uh, and, you know, continued through that again, lost that job. They finally we had a temporary one down in Florida for a while, but, uh, that was during the real estate crash. So mm-hmm. that job exploded then a had Hunter found me a job in Houston and, uh, we moved there. And, um, one time now we're talking about, uh, um, March of 2011, my wife was out of the country that didn't have a whole lot to do with it, but mm-hmm. she wasn't there. And, uh, I just decided to have a drink and, and my alcoholism, my, my alcoholic thinking had returned. And, um, you know, that insanity came back and I just thought it'd be a good idea. Maybe I wasn't really an alcoholic after all. Maybe I just had a drinking problem, you know, 22 years ago. Hell, it's been 22 years. I haven't had a drink. So I bought a bottle and tending to have a few and got drunk. And, uh, the next day I poured it out and, uh, said, you know, the, uh, I'm not going to drink again. Mm -hmm. I can't drink. And, uh, but it didn't go back to AA. In fact, at that time, there was a lot of shame involved, Mm -hmm. you know, after that drunk, I was ashamed. I I had 22 years, I knew better and I blew it, but I just set that aside and said, that's it. I'm not drinking. Then about a month later and I'll try and speed this up a bit. You know, about a month later I walked in after working late into a restaurant, like it was Applebee's or Chili's or something. And the place was full, but they had some room at the bar. And I went and sat down at the bar with absolutely no intention of drinking. And when the bartender said, what do you want? I said, uh, bourbon, a draft beer, and a cheeseburger. Hmm. I mean, it just rolled out. And uh, and ironically, I controlled it like that for about a year, not mm-hmm. getting drunk. Uh, because I had, my wife had never seen me drink. And I didn't tell her that I had had a drink. And, uh, but... But now I'm coming home more and more late, telling her I'm working late projects. You know, so don't wait for me. I'll just grab dinner on the way home. And um, and it didn't. She didn't. Didn't stop to think that maybe I was drinking. That didn't occur to her. She thought maybe I was having an affair, and I was with my best friend. Alcohol. Yeah. So the uh, and I can tried to convince her that I could handle it, and showed her that I could. I couldn't. Mm-hmm. It hap- just like with everybody else, I started to drink, and I became a binge drinker. I'd never been a binge drinker before. I'd been a daily drinker, yeah. but not a binge drinker. Yeah. So now I would stay sober for weeks at a time, and then buy a bottle and just you know, if it was a half pint, I'd mm-hmm. drink it all. If it was a pint, I'd drink it all. If it was a quart, I'd drink it all. Yeah. And um, had to enter a detox uh, because I wanted to stop. And this time and now by now my wife doesn't want you know mm-hmm. me around drinking and um she's seeing me kill herself she loves me i love yeah. her and she's watching me destroy myself
2: yeah
1: and uh um she had had some history in the past with previous relationships you know with mm-hmm. with uh, substance abuse so she wasn't going to stand for it and uh I checked into a detox and uh and it was hell trying to get out. After the five days, I said, okay, I'm ready to go home. And they and they wouldn't release me. They wanted mm-hmm. me to go through their treatment program. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, they uh, long story short, I set up a meeting with the hospital administrator or the program administrator, you know, and said, you know, I had 22 years of sobriety. I slipped. I know AA. I know everything about AA. You know, I know the program. I know the steps. I know what I have to do. You know, there's nothing you can do for me except keep me locked up for another 21 days, <laughs> yeah. you're not going to teach me anything I don't know. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I got out, started going to meetings and now I'm not, you know, deep in the Bible belt, but I still am. Mm-hmm. And there was still a lot of God talk there and, uh, went for a while and, uh, my wife even went to some Al-Anon, and, uh, um, just gradually drifted away. Mm-hmm. And stayed sober again for a long time. I can't really remember how long now. Those the six years here now between then and now mm-hmm. uh, got a little fuzzy. But sure. it it started again. Only you know, I was a little better at hiding it. Wound up in another detox. This time I agreed to go to their aftercare program. Mm-hmm. And again for me it was nothing because it was mostly geared around teaching newbies about alcoholism. But they did have a one night a week you were supposed to bring your significant other to the meeting with you, family night. And that was helpful for her because the family was allowed to get some of their pain off their chest and also learn a little bit about alcoholism. You know, it wasn't all me just being bad. You know, I didn't have a disease. Mm-hmm. And um, so there, there was some benefit that came from that. And, uh, again, that lasted for a long time. And then again, I started sneaking some drinks and that quickly escalated into the binge drinking mm-hmm. again and back into another detox. Um, this time I went to a, a, uh, psychiatrist who specialized in alcoholism and, uh, addiction and did outpatient detox.
2: Okay.
1: And, uh, and that really worked well for the mm-hmm. both of them. And, uh. And I had a couple of slips, mm-hmm. but they were minor ones. And, uh, you know, he had prescribed some meds for me mm-hmm. to, you know, to come down. And my wife had someone to talk to as well. Mm-hmm. And it was, uh, psychi- was kind of unique. The, uh, this psychiatrist had what he called a concierge service. I paid him for a year's worth of $6,000 of uh, counseling in advance.
0: That's interesting.
1: And And, and for that amount of money he was available 24 seven to be called. And, you know, especially in the beginning Hmm. and, and it would go in, you know, in the first week, first, you know, a few months, I would go in to see him every week and then we gradually cut that back. And, uh, and that was good. And I stayed sober, you know, for a long time there. Then the, uh, you know, I was working for a, in a high stress job, uh, that I didn't like, for a person that I didn't like a real, mm, you know, yeah. you talk about a type personalities. This was a triple a type. Yeah. And, um, you know, I, I, uh, I finally said I had enough. I was, I was, uh, 64 years old. My mm-hmm. plan was to retire at 66
2: mm-hmm.
1: and the month before I quit, uh, which was September of, uh, of 2000, was fifteen. Mm-hmm. Uh, my wife had been back in Georgia visiting relatives, and one of those relatives had the business, uh, had a business, mm-hmm. and wanted to sell it because mm-hmm. he, he enjoyed the the business but didn't enjoy running the business, and mm-hmm. it was it was making him, you know, ill. Yeah. So um, she came back from that vacation and said, you know, gosh, when you retire, wouldn't it be nice if we could move back and buy a little business and I could run it? And we said, yeah after I quit that job, I, you know, we were sitting there saying what to do. And we said, well, your cousin wants to sell that business. Let's go look at it. And the next week we were on a plane. We looked at it, decided we were going to buy it.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: She went back. We decided that, you know, now we didn't have any income. And, mm-hmm. and uh, um, I had made, I was making a significant income. So mm-hmm. if I started to draw on social security, they would have just taken it all back because we exceeded the amount we could earn.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And, uh, but I moved here to do due diligence and, uh, the alcoholism raised its head again. Here I was alone, <laughs> lonely, nobody else around uncomfortable. Uh, and I started drinking, um, and, uh, again on and off doing those little binges, do it, stop, throw it away. Um, it would take end abuse, um, and then, you know, that psychiatrist had given my wife, uh, a little breathalyzer to use if she suspected me. So we oh, would do, wow. we would do little video chats and I would do the breathalyzer and take the interviews in front of her, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, but I found ways to cheat when she came out finally in December, things got better, but then I was still sneaking some drinks. Long story short, last July, I went to, um, my last detox, okay. five-day inpatient detox program, because I had been drinking a pint or more a mm-hmm. night. I would wait for her to go to sleep, get up, quickly chug as you know as much as I could, and then jump back into bed. Yeah. And uh, so I came out. Bef- and uh, I'm sorry. Let me back up. Before that, I really wanted to stop drinking. She caught me drinking a few times, and I found a doctor who specialized in addiction. And, uh, was, you know, was a member and, uh, and an atheist. Okay. So I started working with him and a counselor that he recommended, but then I started secretly drinking Mm -hmm. and wound up in that detox. Mm -hmm. When I got out, continued to see that doctor only for counseling. I switched back to that psychiatrist in Houston Mm -hmm. and, and we did FaceTime Skype, you know, meetings back and forth. Mm -hmm. And, um, and, uh, so that was back last August. And then I think it was in September, I started Googling for whatever reason. I looked up atheist or agnostic AA and mm-hmm. found waft. Yeah. And I went, wow. And there's a meeting schedule. Yep. Yeah. And, uh, so I found, looked up Georgia and found out there were four meetings, let's see, exactly four meetings in yeah. Georgia, two in Atlanta and two in Savannah, which is hundreds of miles away. Yeah. Uh, even the one in Atlanta is is an hour drive mm-hmm. each way, 60 miles away from me, right. Uh, but I went to my first agnostic AA meeting of the two. yep uh, the uh, the first I, I didn't like so much. the second mm-hmm. was a really good good one. On October 14th, my the the AA group, the more religious one that was close to me, Still a twenty-minute drive to get to the meeting. Um, they put up a poster about this men's weekend,
2: mm-hmm.
1: and uh, highly suggested that I go because it was great. And so I went, and um, and I looked around, and they, they did it at this big, uh, you know, 4-H center that had room, for, you know, cabins and you know you could sleep eight people, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And uh, I hear these four hundred people, and they're all talking about. God, you know, got them sober and was keeping them sober. And I had sort of an aha moment that occurred because now I'm more and more firmly agnostic. Yeah. And, uh, I said, if, if these 400, in my opinion, delusional people think God is keeping them sober, Mm -hmm. uh, then something about this program works again. You know, they're staying yeah. sober. Right. I don't believe there is a God. So right. something is there. Right. And um, and then it, it's just, it was, it just started cascading. Yeah. I went to the, I, I found your email address, volunteered to narrate stories. Mm-hmm. We met at the uh, convention. Mm-hmm. That convention just blew me away. Yeah. You know, to see that many people who were atheists and agnostics, you know. Yeah. Who, didn't have horns right. uh, <laughs> yeah, and, and, uh, you know, came back from there. Um, I, unfortunately I also had cataracts, so yeah. it, it was fall and I could no longer drive at night and couldn't go to those meetings. Mm-hmm. So, so recording those stories became my meetings. Mm-hmm. I, you know, I was going mm-hmm. to meetings daily. I was listening to other people's yeah. stories and recording them. And that's why I say that was so, so important to my yeah. society. Uh, during December, I had that cataract surgery. And now uh, last week, I went to my first meeting again. I could yeah. finally release to drive at night. And uh, it was the best meeting that I've attended, Good. you know, and since I left California. Yeah. Here, here again was the camaraderie. Yeah. We went to dinner afterwards. Mm-hmm. You know, they asked me to be of service. I started talking a little bit about ours, and we'll we'll talk more about that later.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: But the uh, you know it, it it was really great. So that's really kind of my story up yeah. till now. You that's, know, I'm now I'm staying sober a day at a time. Yeah, and I think in, in for me to wrap up my story, it's really important for me to say that the program really is one day at a time. I recently right. heard somebody share. A day of sobriety is like a marble. You yeah. know, if you stay sober, you get a marble, but you can't stack marbles. Yeah. So no matter how many of them you have, you have to work this program on a daily basis. Yeah. I mean, I got a bag of marbles with over eight thousand marbles in it, <laughs> and it didn't keep me sober. Um, but one day at a time, if I wake up, and and don't take a, a you know a drink yeah. that day, and then go to bed sober. I can, you know, I get a marble, uh, I can say I'm in sobriety now because on a day-to-day basis, I don't drink. Yep. I agree. That's uh, what it's about. I still take some of those medicines that the doctors recommended. Mm -hmm. They said because of all the relapses I had had Mm -hmm. over six years, Mm -hmm. they wanted to put me on medication, naltrexone. Mm -hmm. I started off with 40 milligrams of Valium a day. Mm Mm-hmm. And now it's down to like two and a half
2: mm-hmm.
1: and, and then another week it'll be none. Good. And, you know, and some gabapentin. So people are asking me, you know, well, what's your sobriety date? And I said, well, at this point I am, I'm, I've yet to name one okay. when I'm, when I'm no longer walking with crutches, meaning still taking those drugs, oh, no. then, then perhaps I'll pick a day and say, okay, you know, this is January, you know, 31st is my yes. new sobriety date. Okay, but it to me it doesn't matter. No, it doesn't. I didn't lose those twenty. No, he doesn't. No, no, absolutely not. I I learned the program. I is part of your story program. still.
0: I mean, you haven't lost a damn thing.
1: And even when I went back to drinking, I still lived the principles of the program. Yeah. yeah. And uh, so let's
0: you know, talk a little bit live really about, about what you've done on AA Beyond Belief because I'm quite frankly amazed by it you have recorded at least 46 maybe now by now 47 stories yes. over a relatively short period of time and the quality is incredible i mean the um you could be making thousands of dollars doing this but the 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 way that you put emotion into the stories it's like you understand you could, you somehow have a way of dramatically conveying what the writer wanted to convey. It's just, it, it's just, it amazes me. How, how did you ever, did you have like acting experience or anything? How did you ever get to learn to do something like this?
1: <laughs> no, I, 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 didn't have any acting experience. I mean, uh-huh. uh, years and years and years ago, I got involved with like one play in community theater uh-huh. that my wife wanted to, uh, you know, to join. Yeah. And, uh, but that really was my own experience. I, I never had acting experience, but I think what it is, is I really, really do identify with what these people are saying. Yeah. I feel what they feel. I can understand it. Like, yeah. No others can outside of our program. We can each understand each other's pain and suffering, That's what even if our stories me. are different.
0: When I when I listen to those stories, and I've listened to almost every one that you've recorded. You get there. You get the sarcasm. You get the humor. You, I mean, it's incredible. I mean, because you you the way that you read the story through your voice, through how you emote. I'm understanding that what the author is conveying is just absolutely incredible. Plus, the way that you do it is very professional, so that you know you can just you can hear it very very well. The the sound quality is pitch perfect. Your diction is just incredible. But as you go through these stories, um, what are your thoughts? I mean, how do you feel on an emotional level reading all of these as often as you do? What kind of an impact is that having on you?
1: Well, some of them actually, you know, you talk about the professionalism of the recording and how, you know, yeah. uh, uh, how it flows. Some of them, I've got to stop and go back and re-record, uh-huh. you, know, uh, you know, several times because sometimes it's me choking up. Uh-huh. I mean, I, I just can't get it out and, yeah. and say the whole sentence without tripping up. Yeah. And other times I'm laughing. Yeah. And other times I'm just you know enjoying what they're saying or 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 they've just exposed me to a new idea that yeah. I hadn't thought of that way before.
0: Isn't that something else?
1: And, and uh,
0: it is like a meeting, isn't it?
1: Yeah it, 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 it truly, truly is. Yeah. So I get to read their stories and then understand them yeah. and then I go back and I and I try to read them. I free read them. It's okay. it's it's not like I I try to practice in advance. Right. I just start reading the story out loud like you would reading from the book at a meeting.
2: Yeah.
1: And um, and when I flub up, I just back up and re-record over that spot. Yeah. But but that's how I I get through them and. Listening to the experience of some of these people, I mean, it is, they, they, these are meetings online for me. They, they yeah. were my meetings. I wasn't able to go out at night right? and I didn't live in an area where I'm not truly welcome at my local meeting mm-hmm. uh, because I announced myself as an agnostic. <laughs> right. you know, so, um, you know, they're not, it's not like they're openly hostile to me, right. but I'll share and absolutely nobody will pick up on the the theme and there's nobody shaking my hand at the end of the meeting Uh saying, I liked what you had to say.
0: No, Um, And it's kind of sad. I I experienced that at my old home group after uh, I started talking a little bit differently. It's kind of, kind of weird, kind of weird to not get those, those feel goods from your fellow AAs.
1: (laughs) But, but in all fairness, they've got a very solid group Uh who grew up here in, in the Bible belt. They, truly believe in what they believe in yeah. and uh and you can it takes both hands to count the number of people who have sobriety in the 20 plus years i mm. mean there's a lot of old timers there that have been mm-hmm. gone to those meetings yeah. for a long time and sober for a long time one yeah. celebrating 40 years yeah um you know i'm not going to change anybody's opinion no. there no and and they're never going to accept my opinion. No. So um, if I've got to drive sixty miles to find a meeting that I that yeah. works for me, I'll do that.
0: And besides, what you're doing on AA Beyond Belief—that truly is um, service. Um, another thing I was going to say: I've tried um, recording a story that I've written before, and I couldn't. I couldn't do. It. I mean, no one would want to listen to it because there's a difference. Like um, speaking. And speaking and reading are two different things. Speaking, reading, writing are, are just completely different as far as I, I've ever, ever been able to experience. You have somehow been able to read it in a way that's very engaging for the, to, for the listener, um, where it's not necessarily like it's being read. It, that's my impression anyway. I really, I, I really, when I listen to your stories, it really draws me into the story. Sometimes I actually get more out of the story listening to it rather than reading it. And, and like, cause I, I've read a story and I thought, well, this is a great story. But then somehow when I re- listen to you, I'm um, read the story, I get even more out of it. It's just, I just, I don't know what it is, but there's something different between those three modes, reading, writing, and speaking. And you somehow bring them all together.
1: Well, it's very gratifying to, to hear that. Um, and, and it's again, you know, my honor to do so. I try to, when I'm narrating them, think think of myself as standing up in front of a group yeah you know telling the story yeah so uh, you know i try to to do it like i mean i've written out stories before yeah but but now i'm, I'm like speaking at a meeting
0: yeah well it's an incredible i gotta service. use some inflection I gotta um, use a w- few jokes when we um when i was when i a couple of years ago when was it, it was okay when I realized I was an atheist, I was like 25 years sober, and I came to the conclusion I was an atheist. This is prior to 2014, maybe 2013, 2012. I don't know when it was, because a couple of years before that, I started searching online. There wasn't a lot of stuff out there on the internet at that time. I think San Francisco had a site, New York had a site, but you didn't have anything on YouTube about atheists or agnostics in AA. You didn't really have any stories out there. Now that's completely cha- that that's a it's everything's different now Lynn because of what you've done that YouTube channel of ours is incredible because you've now got 46 stories recorded that people are listening to and people like it when on the on YouTube where you can have a story you can listen to for 10 15 minutes as opposed to a podcast where you have to invest a whole hour so you've got all this stuff out there that's searchable and I think that um, speaking of that, I think that the next step that I want to do is categorize all the stories on YouTube. And we also have them on SoundCloud because I can create like we can create like different playlists for different subject matter. So that way, if people are looking for a particular topic, you know, they can find this a story that is relating to that topic, um, right. make it a little bit more searchable for them that way.
1: That that sounds you know truly truly interesting and and I think that this medium now is you know will become you know just like uh, you know I said the the meeting that I went to those people are set in their ways mm-hmm. I think AA our central office mm-hmm. is is indeed kind of set in their ways and they're not going to change it uh, they they aren't embracing the internet uh, they are
0: they're talking about it but they all they do is talk talk talk. They never, right. They're afraid of it, and it's too bad. Because, But the rest of AA, us AAs, are out here doing it anyway. So it's, it's a game changer. It truly is. And it's only going to evolve from here. I was um, l- um, reading a post on Facebook that <laughs> I always talk about Joe all the time. He's one of my favorite people. But he posted something on Facebook about um, how he thinks, like, in 20 years from now, that online meetings are going to be probably the norm. Mm-hmm. Um and then someone else mentioned something about how with the um, um advent of virtual reality technology that um it's going to be almost like face-to-face meetings, I don't know, but anyway, a lot of people think that this is going to this is the future of AA. Um it's even hard for me as, as much as I, as I embrace technology, it's kind of hard for me to even understand understand what they're envisioning. But cuz I still I still have that need for the the human connection face to face too, but it's it's interesting to watch this development online through technology like this.
1: Yeah, I don't think the actual face to face fellowship part will I don't think if we ever lose that i think we'll lose yeah it, it can't be all online but no. there's going to be a lot more online and i think what's going to happen is as the you know the elder statesmen retire mm-hmm. and the younger generation starts moving in mm-hmm. you know find more acceptance for for some of this just like the you know the the, you know, the first generation wouldn't accept gays right. or a black meeting or right you know, uh, you know, any sort of specialty meeting. Right. And they didn't even consider a women's meeting.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, and, uh, and they moved on and others moved in who found those, me- those ideas more acceptable. Yep. And, uh, as the leadership changes, you know, it will gradually grow. And maybe it's a good thing that we don't try to change too quickly.
2: Yeah.
1: Uh, and, uh, you know, but, but I think we're headed in the right direction and, our you know, uh, agnostic atheist freethinkers, you know, meetings are being more and more accepted, oh, yeah, and, and growing. They are growing. And, and uh, one of the stories that I just narrated was from somebody who was spiritual but preferred the agnostic meetings because uh, they were a little more real,
0: yeah, that's how I, I I like them um because of the we're less focused on what you believe and more focused on what we do. And I think we we give more credit to the fellowship. Um, it's maddening for me, and I'm a total atheist, but it's maddening for me to sit in a group of people who I see helping each other and they don't give each other credit for, for right, it. It's always some, right, some yeah. external deity that has done the miracle, but
1: Right. And it's it's really them working together. Yeah. You know, uh, and and making it happen. So yeah. that fellowship was what I lost and and I got drunk.
2: Yeah.
1: Now that I found that fellowship again.
2: Yeah.
1: The, uh, the obsession to drink is, is oh, yeah. now, yeah, It it's, I can't say it's left me completely. Yeah. I'm still too young again. Yeah. Uh, but it's gone away. I'm not feeling like I need a release. I have one. Yeah. I found a new family. I found yeah. my fellowship again.
2: Yeah.
1: And, and that makes me so happy inside yeah. and comfortable that it's, um. Uh, it's just hard to express how sure. how wonderful having the fellowship is.
0: So tell me this: what um, I like, the one, one thing I like for AA Beyond Belief is to be a platform for people in recovery to express their recovery through their own creativity, um, so their own talents. So like like you know we've got audio. Um, there's all kinds of medium that I'd like to see displayed on AA Beyond Belief. What would you like to do? What do you have any ideas of of where you would like to go? Anything that you would like to explore as far as um, working on the site, working with um, maybe podcasts or anything like that?
1: Well, I'm I'm certainly interested in continuing to narrate stories mm-hmm. for us for for Belief dot com mm-hmm. and for any other mm-hmm. uh, website that would you know is. is I'd be happy to volunteer mm-hmm. to do the same for them. Mm-hmm. Um, I I would like to see, uh, you know, more of the, uh, the podcast, the interviews, mm-hmm. maybe online meetings where we could, uh, I know there are some online meetings today, but they don't Didn't all record very them. well. Um, but maybe we could record them and yeah. then play them. Yeah. So there could be, you know, and, and we would have probably have to change the format a little bit to yeah. have a moderator moderating the topic of
0: the you meeting. could do oh, streaming yeah. meetings on youtube you could you could actually have a live streaming meeting that you can um, have on youtube and record it for people to um, listen to later and you can still protect everybody's anonymity because it doesn't have to be filmed you know you right. don't show anybody's faces and people just use the last name so it'd just be kind of like an open meeting where you know the public is free to come and listen if they want to uh, and, but i kind of like that idea and it's actually really good for people who have never experienced an agnostic meeting to be able to get kind of a flavor of what one it truly is like it'd be good for some of the traditionalists to say oh this isn't that much different from what we do really other than they don't pray you know and it might be good for the for people who are avoiding aa to see what what actually takes place
1: you know, and, and I'm a city boy, you know, I've, I've always lived in or real in the near suburbs of a, of a large city. Mm-hmm. And now I'm a country mouse, you know, <laughs> I'm sitting out here yeah. in, in the North Georgia mountains,
0: beautiful up there.
1: And, and he, yes, indeed it is. But you know, a lot of the population does not have access to meetings unless they drive for an hour in one yeah. direction uh, yeah. and having to, Something like that be available to them. The the challenge is going to be getting the word out. I'm not quite sure how to do that.
0: Yeah, you, know, a lot you were asking me it. by the way if we had a flyer, and we do. I'll, I'll email you one. And it was actually created by uh, Mikey in Orlando. He created a little flyer for AA Beyond Belief, which I, I shall send to you, so you'll have one.
1: Great, and that way I can you know hand them out to people at mm-hmm. the uh, you know at the secular meetings Do mm-hmm. and you know I'll look. I'll go to the business meeting at the my local group and see, you know, exp- put, try and put on the case and yeah. see if I can get it put up on the wall there, too, because I know I've been encouraged uh, to continue to speak up as an agnostic mm-hmm. in that meeting,
2: mm-hmm.
1: even though they might not like to hear it, because somebody else in that room probably has the same feeling Yep, and isn't going to stand up and say it. Yep. And, and eventually they will. And eventually I'll pick up a couple and, uh, maybe we'll get our own meeting started up here.
2: Uh,
1: so far I've had no, uh, no nibbles on the hook, Mm -hmm. but, uh, somebody out there, I mean, small town life is everybody knows what's going on. And if you Mm -hmm. come out, you're out. So, uh, you know, it may be difficult to get this growing, but more and more as, uh, people learn and become educated, uh, and again, the generational changes take Mm -hmm. place there are more and more young people coming in who mm-hmm. i think are turned off by these the non-secular meetings yeah, yeah and would be very much more attracted to the secular ones sure. so yeah. again, i'm gonna i'm gonna try and get myself introduced into a few of the treatment programs here yeah. and see if i can maybe be a speaker uh or maybe even that would be a place to start a meeting
0: yeah actually it would be a good place to start a meeting that's an excellent idea um, they, they would love to hear it. And it might be that they might even not even be aware of agnostic AA at the treatment centers in your area, but, um, a lot of treatment centers really welcome it. Um, and, and we get a lot of referrals actually to our group in Kansas city from, um, treatment centers around here. When, if they have a patient who says, oh, I don't want to do AA, it's too, got too much God. They say, Oh, check this group out. And we actually get a lot of people that way. So,
1: yeah. Yeah. I- I have one, uh, psychologist here, um, who, who I've, you know, sat with and, and, and volunteered to do so. They were, she holds one meeting a month, but it's, it's really a counseling meeting. You gotta yeah. pay 40 bucks, uh, you know, for people to come in and, um, you know, the, uh, you know, that's, that's part of it. People who aren't mm-hmm. into the, uh, religious AA and, uh, but our court ordered to go to you know, <laughs> get yeah. uh, and, uh, and she invited me to, uh, you know, come to those. Of course, I still got to pay 40 bucks. Yeah. So, um, you know, I'm not, I know I'm not going to get a whole lot of people that are interested in going there, yeah. but if, from there I can pull in some people yeah. and we'll get something started okay. one way or another.
0: Yeah, it's going ha- it's it's to happen. It will. Well, I've really enjoyed this talk. Thank you very much for agreeing to do this. And thank you again for all of your work on AA Beyond Belief. Um, it's helped many, many people, including myself. So thank you very much for that, Lynn. Well, thank you very much for having me, for uh, giving
1: me a platform to tell my story. And also to uh, anybody that's listening, uh, if you're interested in North Georgia to try and get something together, or or even if it's not a meeting, just get together. Um, you know, I'm I'm welcome. I welcome anybody to contact me. Well, thank you. Man. Thank you for letting me be
0: of service. Well, that's it for another episode of AA Beyond Belief, the podcast. Thank you for listening. May take a week off next week. Uh, my daytime job is getting pretty demanding. Got to put a little bit of time into that. Uh, but I've got some interesting guests coming up. I'm reading a book right now that I'll be finishing soon. Uh, we Could Be Heroes by Sarah Dale, a very talented author from Lincoln, Nebraska, and I'd love to have her on to talk about her book. Also, uh, Dale Kay, my friend from Florida, has written a very interesting book. A study, a secular study of the Big Book. I'd love to talk to him about that. Ben B., of course, also from Lincoln, will be back on to uh, help us finish out the steps with a nice little chat about Step 12. So until then, you all take care, be well, we'll talk again soon.